So we've been in a, in a series as a church called With, just looking at all the ways that God is with us. And uh, Rome has been off in Wheaton College and, and just uh, living life out in Chicago. And he's going to be bringing the, the word this morning, make some space here for him. And so uh, Rome, as he's unwrapping himself there, I'll try to fill the time in here. But we just love Rome in our church and are super blessed. Uh, just to be able to see what God is doing in his life. There we go. All right. So why don't you make some noise one more time for Rome? Just open your heart to what God wants to do. Good, good morning. <laughs> Merry Christmas! <laughs> uh, so, yes, um, Rich invited me to speak this morning. Uh, my name is Rome, if I haven't met you yet. Uh, right now I'm attending Wheaton College outside of Chicago, where I'm studying communications as well as biblical and theological studies. Um, so it is an absolute blast to be up here uh, with everybody today. Um, and I was asked to speak on the Bible. I know, big surprise. <laughs> and um, apparently, this is what they tell me, is we've been going through a series called With, and looking at ways that God is with us today. Um, so last week, I believe we covered With, and how God is with us through His Spirit. And so today I will be talking about how God is with us through people. If we look in the Bible, it's a story about God— but all throughout, there are a lot of people in it, okay? So God is with us today primarily through his church, and so I'll be talking a lot about that. Um, so if we look through the Old Testament, we see that God begins um, by working through people um, at the beginning with these people called judges, okay? And so in the nation of Israel, which was God's first community that he built on earth, it was a nation on earth that he decided that I'm going to dwell among them. And so these people called judges, it was their job to rescue Israel from their oppressors. Um, and so the Bible talks about this. Whenever um, they were being oppressed, the Lord would raise up a judge, and it was their job to kind of rule over Israel and say, okay, how can I be an instrument of God and be used to rescue them? And so moving on from the judges, after Israel establishes a monarchical hierarchy for ruling, then the prophets become a lot more prevalent. So what is a prophet? It's somebody whose job is to proclaim the will of God. So judges were rescuers, bringing the justice of God. And prophets were bringing the voice of God to the nation of Israel. But the problem with the prophets was that no matter how many of them God sent, the people would never listen. And so um, it was very cyclical, and this is captured well in this passage from Ezekiel. Um, your fame soon spread throughout the world because of your beauty, Israel. I dressed you in my splendor and perfected your beauty, says the sovereign Lord. But you thought your fame and beauty were your own. So you gave yourself as a prostitute to every man who came along. Your beauty was theirs for the taking. You used the lovely things I gave you to make shrines for idols where you played the prostitute. Unbelievable! How could such a thing ever happen? These prophets brought God's voice, but God's voice wasn't enough. So, another thing that the prophets did was they foretold the coming of someone who would change everything. They talked about how one called Emmanuel would come. If that sounds really exciting, you're going to have to come back on Christmas Eve to hear more about that. Now, we are finally going to get to the Christmas story, which I know is the most exciting part about the Sunday before Christmas at church. Um, so a brief overview. Um, God comes to a virgin named Mary and says, I am going to use you to give birth to a son, and he's going to save the entire world. And through the story, then Mary goes to a relative named Elizabeth, uh, who takes care of her for a while, 
and then Mary's fiance, Joseph, despite being a little leery at first when he finds out that his fiance is pregnant and it wasn't him, then he agrees, okay, well, this is what God did. And so he becomes a father to the boy. Jesus is born in a manger. All these shepherds come. A while later, some wise men come. Okay, that's the classic story. That's the overview. So we're going to look at how God uses people all throughout that in order to serve Mary and Joseph. So very first, when Mary finds out that she's pregnant, doesn't know what to do, she goes to her relative, Elizabeth. And so as another great thing about Elizabeth is God actually uses Elizabeth not just to care for Mary, but to also serve as confirmation of what he said is going to happen. Um, so we look in Luke chapter 1, verse 36 to 37. Um, the angel speaking to Mary says, What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month, for the word of God will never fail. This is a promise to Mary and a sign that what God said about her is true. So Mary goes to see Elizabeth, and this is what I find to be super interesting because Elizabeth's teenage cousin shows up claiming to be pregnant out of the blue. Now, in the ancient world, to be pregnant outside of wedlock would have been world-ending for a woman. You would lose all of your social ties, your family would reject you, you would be utterly shamed, dishonored, and shunned. Now, if a, if a teenage girl showed up to her much older relative and claiming to be pregnant, would it be much better? No. But Elizabeth, seeing Mary, absolutely proclaims blessing and peace and hope into her life. She knows that God is working through Mary just as God has been working through her, causing her to be pregnant in her old age. So just as people can be used to show blessing and bring God's presence to other people, we can also do the exact opposite. Just as Elizabeth served Mary, how many times do we fail to serve others in their need? So, if we go nine months forward from here, and Mary and Joseph are together in the town of Bethlehem, and the baby is born, and it's wonderful, God uses some other people to bring his presence. Shepherds. Now, that, that word doesn't have a lot of meaning to us today because we don't understand what shepherds meant in biblical times. Now, shepherds weren't simply people who took care of sheep. They were criminals, social outcasts, who nobody wanted around. Today, we think of them as homeless, drug abusers, the absolute lowest in the social society. And these are the people that God uses to bless Mary and Joseph. Luke chapter 2, verses 15 through 20. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished, but Mary kept all these things in her heart. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. Now I'm going to bookmark the shepherds and turn here to Joseph. And I want you to imagine what it must have been like to be Joseph in this situation. His story with Mary begins with becoming betrothed to her and then finding out that she's pregnant. This is horrific. Because, not just because somebody cheated on you, but also because he was already betrothed, which in biblical times would have been just as binding as marriage, and to break it off would have required a divorce. But being an honorable man, despite 
all of the dishonor that the adulteress had shown him, he decided he was going to divorce her quietly and bring her as little possible shame in order to preserve her life and not absolutely ruin it. That's pretty big. I don't know if I would have been able to have the same compassion on someone if they did that to me. But this is what Joseph has done. And then the unthinkable happens, and an angel appears to him and says, no, take Mary as your wife, because she, yes, is pregnant, because that is God's plan to save the world. And Joseph agrees, and he marries Mary, marries Mary, and waits for the child to be born, neglects to consummate the marriage. Kids, you can ask your parents what that means later, and stays with her and takes care of her in her pregnancy. And here they are, nine months later, not in a palace or a castle or a kingdom, somewhere fit for the king of kings, but now they've been shunned into a barn. And if I were him, I would be wondering what is going on. If God's really here, if God is really taking care of this family, then why are we here of all places? If it is his son that is about to be born, then why is it inside of a barn? And in the moment that I see Joseph, feeling the greatest test of being a husband and a father to this child, when the baby is actually born, and he looks into the eyes of this tiny face of a child that does not resemble him. In this moment, that is when they arrive. The shepherds. Weather-beaten clothing draped over gaunt faces, shifting awkwardly in the dry winter air. These are the kind of men that a husband and a father is supposed to protect his family from. They are the criminals. They are the dangerous ones. They are the ones you want kept away from women and children. And then, and then, the unthinkable happens. They see the child, and they bow down, and they worship. And if I am Joseph in that moment, I think I'm done doubting. God has shown up. Not through kings, but through shepherds. And God has brought his presence to the stable. Through the socially ostracized, lowliest, unwanted, uneducated, and unloved. And if God can use shepherds to love others, he can use you. And you may feel like you were too stupid, or ugly, unwanted, unconnected, but that's who God uses. 1 Corinthians one twenty seven says, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. The best part about not being saints and about being broken humans is that Jesus didn't come to save saints. He came to save the foolish, the weak, the unwanted, and the unloved. He came to save us. And the people who are strong, and the people who are wise, they'd rather serve their own pride than serve God. They are their own rival gods. And that's why God comes to us, the people who admit that they don't have it all together. So maybe you doubt that God can use you to bring his presence to others. It's wrong. It's prideful. And that's not how God works. If God can use shepherds to bring glory to his newborn son, he can use you to bring his presence to anyone. Now this last part of the Christmas story, 
we talked about as the wise men. Historically speaking, the wise men didn't come till about two years after Jesus' birth, but we tell their part of it, and God did use them, so I figure they're a good illustration as well. Um, so what sets the wise men apart from Elizabeth, from Joseph, from the shepherds, is that there was no divine appointment for them to go and then be with this newborn king. But in their job as wise men, which was really royal astrologers, looking at the stars and telling what the stars meant, they determined that a king would be born in the east, and that's who they would go to. Now, this is really interesting how this actually works, because in the Roman and Greek pantheon of gods, all the stars had different meanings and different signs and whatnot. And so how they told that what was happening was the king was being born in the east was the star of Jupiter, or Zeus, the king of the gods, was aligned with the star of Venus, who was the sign of fertility, of motherhood. These stars aligned in the east, and that's how they could tell a king being born in the east through the Roman pantheon of pagan gods. And it's through this that they are then brought to the one true God. And so again, two years after Jesus' birth, and they show up, and they give their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and they bow down, and they worship the king. And the Bible never actually says if they say anything to Mary and Joseph. Maybe it's not our job to go to people and then say something, but it's enough to be with people. Not being alone is enough. So how is God bringing his presence into the world today? What's really handy is that Jesus himself actually outlined a perfect plan for this in the book of Matthew. He says to the disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all that I have taught you, and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is known as the Great Commission where their disciples are given their task, and by extension, we are given the same tasks to go, to make disciples, to teach, to baptize. But nowhere in this is the command, uh, group up, uh, do life together, uh, make communities. Right? Is the Christian walk meant to be done alone or in community? Are we together or not? Now, I believe that this is actually, this question has been answered all the way back in the book of Genesis. When God looked at Adam and he said, it is not good for man to be alone. And we see this theme all throughout the Bible. If we look back in Deuteronomy, this is Old Testament early on, and God's talking about why he chose Israel, a community, a nation. He says, the Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other nations, for you were the smallest of all nations. You were weak, you were foolish, and that is why God chose you. And he did not choose an individual of you, he chose all of you together to become his people. Now, if we go onwards, we look at Proverbs 27, 17. This is wisdom literature telling us how to live our lives. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Now, a different translation of this that I love comes from the Hawaiian Pigeon Bible, which is technically a different language, but we can tell what it says. You're in for a treat. Foe makes sharp something iron, need iron. Foe makes sharp one friend, need another. Yes, that's another with two Ds. Need another friend. And I know it sounds funny, but our English translations don't capture the same thing. In English, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Iron does this thing. It is capable of sharpening iron, so one friend is capable of sharpening another. But if we look at this, foam makes sharp something iron, need iron. In order for iron to become sharpened, you need iron. If you're going to sharpen a knife, do you use a stick of butter, a piece of wood, or a knife sharpener made of iron? In order to make a friend sharp, you use a stick of butter, a piece of wood, 
or another friend. We don't grow alone. We grow together. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 10. Two are better than one, for they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and is no one to help them up. The King James Version says, Woe to him that falleth. Now, Merriam-Webster does not recognize falleth either, but you understand the point. Woe, pity him who is alone. It is not good for man to be alone. Lastly, Jesus says in Matthew 18 through 20, or 18, 20, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, starting from my life and how, and how I saw God being with me through others and not alone was my freshman year, which was uh, a difficult transition into high school uh, and figuring out where do I belong, um, who do I call my friends. And I got invited to a Bible study with uh, a teacher and then a couple seniors, juniors, people way out of my leagues of freshmen. And it was in here that I realized that I was foolish, that I was weak. But I also realized that God was with me through these people, that I wasn't alone after all, and that I had a place I could call home with these people because of how God showed himself through them and in the community that formed. But why does God use community? God's powerful enough. He could use individuals. We wouldn't need a church, right? We could just show up and God would be there in our breakfast table every morning and able to coach us and be with us and help us through the day. And while God is with us everywhere we go individually, God has chosen to use a community to continually perpetuate his presence and his power among his people. And the main reason for this, it's not good for man to be alone, is that when we are alone, we break. So I took the liberty of looking up statistics on loneliness in America. The U.S. government's Health Resources and Services Administration says that the health consequences associated with loneliness exceed the risk comparable of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Now, loneliness is found to be a key indicator and direct contributor of depression, anxiety, substance abuse, and domestic abuse. Of these, the link between depression and loneliness is most concerning because each feeds off of and fuels the other. Now, at the start of 2020, an NPR study found that three in five Americans considered themselves to be lonely. That is before the pandemic, which has exacerbated loneliness like nothing before. Um, so, again, something that's also concerning before the pandemic is just from 2018 to 2020, there was a 13% increase in general loneliness, according to NPR. Now, a Harvard University research study, which was conducted in July after the beginning of the pandemic, it found that 36% of Americans and 61% of American young adults were lonely frequently or almost all the time. The prevalence of anxiety symptoms has tripled since late 2019, 43% of young adults reporting an increase in loneliness since the beginning of the pandemic. Loneliness is a disease. It is an epidemic that is as dangerous as COVID. And it has infected us, and it is my generation's disease above anything else. And it is rampant, and it destroys. It breaks the spirit, and it breaks the body. It is not good for man to be alone. We were literally designed for community. And when we go outside of that, when we go outside of God's design for man as a social being, we break. So it's our job 
to be with others because it is through each other that God's presence is brought into our lives. I can have all the solitude and time alone with Jesus that I want. I will not function as a human being because I was not made to be alone. I have here a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German pastor and a leader in the resistance against Adolf Hitler. He was martyred for his beliefs and for what he did. He also wrote a book called Life Together about the importance and centrality of Christian community to our lives. He says, Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. At the end, all his disciples deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this cause he had come, to bring peace. So the Christian, too, belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. There is his commission, his work. The kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies. And he who will not suffer this does not want to be part of the kingdom of Christ. He wants to be among friends, to sit among roses and lilies, not with the bad people, but with the devout people. The language here is evocative, the message explicit. How are we bringing the presence of God to the unsaved in our lives? Do we have non-Christian community? Has COVID limited our social sphere so much that it feels like that is not even an option anymore? It is not good for man to be alone. And it is the trap of Christian community to withdraw ourselves from the world. And that is not an option. And in the last two years, that has become more of a problem than ever. And I am guilty of that. I go to a Christian college. Not a ton of options for evangelism there. But how are we bringing the presence of God to people who otherwise have none of the presence of God in their lives? It is great. It is amazing. We were made to be in Christian community with each other. But it is also our job, our mandate, to be with those who don't have Jesus in their lives. And the great thing about being in the lives of the unsaved is that the most powerful defense of the gospel is Christian community itself. And this is outlined in the Bible as well. Jesus says in John 13, 35, By this, all the world will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. Okay? Now, if we look in the book of Acts, this is the early church just being born. It says that the early church worshipped together in the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. They are together. Now, if we look at that, verse 46, and we add on verse 47, they worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. The evidence of God's love in Christian community changes the world. There is not fellowship there is not love, there is not accountability, there is not honesty like there is in Christian community. And when the world sees that, a lonely, broken world full of lonely, broken people, and they see the evidence of God's love in us, that changes everything. It is our job to be in the thick of foes. It is our job to love We'll do a quick summary here and then bring it all together. So one, throughout the Bible, God uses people to bring about his voice and his will. Throughout the story of Jesus' birth, God uses people to 
bring his presence, providing care and comfort to Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. Three, God has instituted his church to bring his presence into the world. Four, our bringing the presence of God has literally never been more important than it is now. People are lonelier, disconnected, and depressed, unlike ever before. And it is Christian community, it is us that God is, is using to bring love to people that need it. And our love for others is the most powerful case for the gospel that we can make. So what's, what am I getting at here? God has put in place a community to continually perpetuate his presence and his power among his people. Through others, God is faithful, provisional, and redeeming. Through people and through his church, God is with us. So what does that mean for us? We need to be people through whom God is present with others. This is not an option. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to follow after Christ. So who can you be present with this season? Start now. Worry about the rest of your lives afterwards. Christmas is notorious for being a time of loneliness, for people that need to be connected. And it is our job to be present with others, because that is how God's presence is brought to them. How can you move from a place of safety and isolation People watching online, I'm looking at you right now. Isolation is not an option. You will break your spirit, your mind, and your body. Amen. Amen. And I am overjoyed at all the people that I see here today because it is so hard to convince anyone to get out of their home, whether because of fear whether because it is just easier to stay home. Guys, it's so much easier to do nothing than to do something. That's just a fact. And I, I am not trying to shame the people watching online, okay? Maybe you are far away, and I thank you for watching me, honestly. That's amazing. And I'm glad that you are here to hear about the truth of God. But what you're seeing through that camera is not me speaking on a stage. You are seeing me here with a community of people, a community that is inviting you into it, a community that wants you here, and a community that, frankly, you need to be a part of. Alone, your spirit and your body will break. It is not good for you to be alone. Amen. And so I'm going to do one of those awkward things where I ask you to turn to each other in the audience now. All I ask is make eye contact with one person and say, I am glad you are here. Okay, guys, see how nice that was? You see how the, those people that said that to you, they, they meant it. You believe that? I know I do. Those of us watching online, virtual hug. I hope you're not watching alone. I hope you're there with people that you can turn to and say, I am glad you are here. But we want to invite you into a community that is bigger. And yes, being with people can be unsafe. It can be scary but it's worth it. It is what we were designed to do. 
And that is how God is with us, through each other. So, in wrapping up, I'd like to invite everybody back on Friday, 4 p.m., for our Christmas Eve service, where we'll learn about and praise God for how he came to be born, live among, die for, and rise again for us. We will come and we will celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. Now I'd like to invite the band of eBay up while I pray. Jesus, thank you for bringing all of these people here today. For those that couldn't come, God, I can't wait to see them soon. Thank you that you have built your church as a place where we can come together, that we can love each other, that we can do life together, and that we can be with you through each other, Lord. Thank you that you did not choose for us to do life alone, and thank you that you made us depend upon each other. Thank you that we break when we are alone. Thank you that we need each other, and thank you that you've given us each other to love each other and to glorify you. Thank you for sending your son to die for our sins and for saving us. And thank you for everyone at this church that helps volunteer, that just comes, that loves each other, and is here today. And all God's people said,